So week one, week one of our message series, uh, Christian Assumptions That Harm Rather Than Heal. I believe it was my freshman year in college, a uh, bunch of buddies of mine, we went down to the glass house. That, that it, I did, Not even in my notes, it just popped back into my head. It was a place down in San Diego uh, uh, near Point Loma Nazarene University, and, and we went and saw Hollywood Nights. High school in Hollywood, their mascot was the Knights with a K. And I learned a phrase that very, very vividly, rather pictorially describes what happens when we assume, when we make assumptions. I'm going to leave that up to you to ask some friends what that, that assumption was and how that person worded it. I'm going to choose to paraphrase that. Um, paraphrase, both the one assuming and the one about which the assumption was made are, are, are both affected to some degree, um, whether unfairly or just inaccurately. Um, when assumptions are made, th- there are people that suffer and there are people who benefit. Um, for example, the, uh, suffering. I, I'm colorblind. I don't see red and green very well at all, a little bit. Uh, I think I shared this before. I had a couple cans, and one was a, a, a stain or a, 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 a preservative for wood, penifin, I think it was called, and another can that, that whatever was inside had flowed over the edges, and I couldn't see, but it looked the same as the, the, the stain for my deck, so I just poured them both into the big old paint barrel, and, and, I, and I did the deck, and my wife came home and said, well, why did you paint our deck red? I, I didn't. I, look at that, that's stained. No, no, Jerry, that, that, you just painted our deck red. Um, I suffered tremendously for the next, I think, month and a half. I was out there with spray guns. I was out there with uh, disc sanders, you name it. I was trying to get that red paint off because she wasn't going to live with a red deck. Um, it was just, it was miserable. And, and we can also benefit, and I've benefited from, from assumptions that people have made. I, I was uh, asked to be the NYI president of the Sacramento District um, and, I, and I had the distinct impression I was only asked because I happened to have one of the bigger youth groups on the district. But that was only because I happened to be attending and serving at one of the bigger churches in the district. And I, and I found out as I, as I went out amongst the district and I, and I hung out with, with all the, the youth pastors and the NYI presidents and the youth workers and directors, and, and I quickly discovered I, I was a poor selection. They, they made poor assumptions. Just because I had a big group, I would make the best leader. It was like... Like they became respecters of persons, right? They, oh, big church, he must be smarter, he must be better, he must be more valuable, must, you know, all this crazy stuff. And, and again, I, I quickly realized, well, and a little bit later on down the road, I, I understand that a lot of them work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and, and I was being paid to be a youth pastor. Um, so if that was their selection criteria, then, then I'm okay with it, but... Um, if it was that they thought that I was the best youth pastor for the job, they, they, were, they were just wrong. I, I benefited from those assumptions. You understand that? Now, why does this happen when we assume? Why do some people suffer and some people benefit when we assume? Well, let's look at, look at what the word means. An assumption is a thing that is accepted as true or as certain to happen. And you catch that last phrase, without proof. For example, they made certain assumptions about the market. Many of you probably, maybe, hopefully not, made assumptions about the market. 2007, 2008, 2009, ring a bell, right? I know my parents, that rings a, a death knell. It, they, they, lost, they lost their entire savings, pretty, pretty much. 
Uh, we use a lot of words, right, to couch, to either indicate that, that this is a wild guess or to indicate that we've really thought about this. Uh, presuppositions, premises, beliefs, expectations, conjecture, speculation, surmise, guess. And here's where it gets, right, if, you're, if you feel like you're an intellectual, you'll use these words, but we all know we're guessing. We all know you're guessing. I hypothesize, right? I postulate, I deduce, I infer. Well, I, I thought. <laughs> I suspect, I have a notion, I have an impression, a fancy guesswork. I love my southern brothers and sisters. Well, I reckon that's the way it is. And you're guessing, right? I, I think I know what that word means, right? I reckon. Guesstimate. Now, to be sure, we all make assumptions surely out of the necessities of life. Sometimes, uh, and, and you, I'm sure you've already come to this conclusion, sometimes we, we simply have no choice. And so kind of on a continuum, right, we can make wild assumptions. And I'm just going to say wild guesses because those two words just fit better together. And this is when there's no information available, right? Wild assumptions are, I, I hope that person that I just bumped into, see, I, my wife and I decided because my wife spends more time with our granddaughters, um, I, I'll be the one that, that goes out. So that, that's kind of on my mind. And, and I know as I go into stores and I, I see people without their mask on, I, I, I get a little bent, just a little bit. And I have unchristian thoughts, I'll just be honest with you. Um, because I don't know if you have COVID, and you don't either, apparently. Like, it doesn't carry a sign, it's not carrying a gun. I, I don't know. There's no information available. Even when I watch the news, it, it just, it's, it's all over the place. So this COVID-19 thing, it, it's, it's a very scary thing. We're, we're making a lot of decisions shooting in the dark. We're kind of the blind leading the blind to a certain extent. Or the Apostle Paul, consider him. He, he grows up eating only Jewish kosher food. You know, and as, as you read into his letters, you, you find out quickly that he was a Jew among Jews. I mean, he, was, he had reached the, the pinnacle of what it meant to be a Jew. And my guess is his dietary, when you look at the dietary laws of the Hebrews, not real thrilling, not a whole lot of diversity whatsoever. And so you can picture him eating with his Gentile host because you know he did that. You know, and, and I, I'm thinking he's praying like I pray because I'm a picky eater. I go to people's houses, and they make these amazing meals, and I say, Jerry, Jerry, don't have that gag reflex. Oh, Lord, please, please, please help me, like, help me fake it if I don't like it. I do, you, know, you can imagine, oh, no offense. No, huge offense, right? So we have wild guesses, but we also have kind of in a continuum, again, we have what would be called, I guess, uninformed assumptions. I assumed you knew. Right? You've all heard that phrase. You've all used that phrase. And my guess is it was quickly followed up by this sense of guilt like, oh, man, I should have known. Right? The information was there, but I, I, I just I chose not to access the information. It was readily available. I did that recently. We had a board meeting, and it was a board retreat. And my wife, because that's the way my wife is, she wanted to make these little gift bags, these little goodie bags. And I said, that, that's fantastic. I don't think along those lines. Um, and so she sent me down to the ministry center here, the, the church, to uh, print off on, on some cardstock that would match these beautiful bags. Uh, apparently, they were purple and pink. They, they all looked the same to me. I, um, and I, I pulled out the pale yellow cardstock. I thought, yeah, yeah, this works. I came home, and the look on her face, I, I, I know that look. It, it was... Uh, 
disappointment, just, just, just with a tinge of disgust, like, why didn't you call me, you idiot? <laughs> you have a phone. You know how to use it. It's got like a camera. You could have shown me, Jerry, and I would have said, no, don't do that. So if you're on the board and you, you look at that bag carefully and the little yellow card is not yellow anymore, she went to work, right? That afternoon, spent quite a bit of time making it color match. That's just the way that goes. Uninformed assumptions, right? They, they kind of get you in trouble. And then there's educated hypotheses. And again, whenever we use that word educated, we kind of like to use, choose one of those words. Don't use guess. That, that, that just doesn't work if we're educated, right? So an educated hypothesis, which is an educated guess, right? Based on all the available information, right? We hired this person, that person. I was a restaurant manager, uh, before I moved to Northern California, became a teacher when I was 28, I was the personnel manager, 120-seat, uh, very, very, very nice seafood restaurant in San Diego. And so I did hiring and firing, and no matter, and I got better at it as, as I went along, but, but no matter how deeply I dug into in the interview, and I looked at the resume, and, you know, all the kind of stuff that they would help me make my decision, um, some of them were still surprising. I, 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 no matter all the available information in the world, simply didn't reveal what they had so carefully hidden in the interview and on paper. Um, and, and, I, and I know teachers, uh, schools, uh, I, uh, police departments, they're kind of stuck in that same trap. Somebody can look really, really good on paper, and then they get out in a situation, and you realize, I shouldn't have hired that person. They're not helping. They're, they're doing more harm than good. But they look so good on paper. So, so the fact of the matter is we, we, we all kind of live in, in our, our, our bubbles, right? I'm going to come to that in just a little bit. Um, now, notice the key to all of this is the availability of information and or the decision to access that information that's available. And I got to thinking, wouldn't it be great if we all accessed all the available information every time we made a decision? I, I thought, well, you know, that, that's, that's a stretch, so let's kind of make it more real, I guess. Why don't we access all the available information when we, when we make decisions? Um, I'd like you to consider this morning the idea that we all, to one degree or another, we live in, again, the, what I call an existential, experiential, it's an experiential bubble Right? I can only know what I've experienced. You can read a book about flying. You can read a book about surfing. But until you've actually been on a board and, and, and nearly a ton of water is, is peeling over, you'll never, you'll never, you can never know that experience. Again, you can read about it. I walk into Costco and, and I see somebody surfing and I'm like, Diane, come on, come on. I, I just, I'm mesmerized um, because I've experienced it and I can almost vicariously experience it again by just watching the video. But I know a lot of people look at it and they can only wildly guess, right, what it's like to be in that kind of a situation. Again, we live in these, these bubbles, and, and, and like it or not, we, everybody has a bubble. We all, we all have a bubble because nobody can experience everything in the world. Humans. I want to give you an example. I live in a colorblind bubble. I'm showing you two pictures up here. I, ho I hope it's clear enough. I, I got online, um, and I knew what these color plates are every year in school since I can remember. I was always held back after the vision and hearing test at school. Jerry, Carter, would you please stay back? And they would show me these things every year, and I, would, I got to thinking, or do they think I'm suddenly going to become uncolorblind? I, I didn't understand that. 
I guess every year they're, yep, yep, he's, he's still colorblind. Um, so I, I got online, and there was like nine plates, and I was like, well, I can't put these up here. First of all, I, I'm not even sure they're real because I can't see anything in them. Um, that, that's what tells. In fact, when I was getting an eye examined once, she did this, and she was clearly a brand-new eye doctor. I'm not sure what the op word is. I mean, she kept telling me I was wrong. <laughs> and I would say, I don't see it. She said, well, what do you mean? You, you, can't, you can't see that number seven? I, I said, no, I'm colorblind. She's like, well, no, 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 let me show you. And she, she just couldn't conceive that what she was seeing so clearly, and I'm sure you're seeing very clearly, I think on the right it's a number 15, and on the left, <laughs> so on the left, the, the first picture, and I can't see a thing, just a bunch of dots. And I put the, the first picture I had up on the left was real blurry, so I, I, I picked another one. I, Diane, Diane, come in here. I said, so is this a real or a fake plate? Can you see something? She said, yes. You're going to help me out on this one? You know, she says, no, it, it says yes. So in my, all the tests that they gave me, there was always either a letter or a number, so I was, I was waiting for her to say, yeah, yeah, that's a B. Or that's a 7 or a 22 or something. Apparently, there's the word yes there. I, and my guess is there are a lot of people sitting at home right now, and they're realizing for the very first time, I'm colorblind. Oh, I love it. I love it. Church, we can teach and learn so many things at church. Now, um, I have some choices. I can continue to make wild guesses, and I, and I did this when I was young and far more arrogant than I am now. I've really worked hard on <laughs> trying to be humble. And I would go clothes shopping alone. No matter how many times I would come home and my sisters and my mom would, oh, no, no, don't, you can't wear that shirt. You can't wear that, you can't wear that shirt to church particularly, right? That, that is just god-awful. That's, that's, that's an eyesore. And, and for me, they were very, very subdued. So my favorite colors have become like purple and red, um, I have to, I, I love deep colors because they, they don't show up. My world, I've discovered, is very pastel. It just, that, that's just the way it works. Um, and I, I've eventually learned I, I can't, I don't. I haven't for probably, probably 40 years, I've, I have not shopped for myself. Um, unless it's a pair of blue jeans or black jeans, right? As, as you can see, I'm a very, very monochromatic dresser. <laughs> I, I wear black jeans and blue jeans. That's it. Okay, I think I got another one, but it's always, you know, hey, Diane, come here and check this out. Right, so I got that choice. I can also continue to make uninformed assumptions, and, and then I can begin to real, really do some harm, and, and recognizing that wild guesses do harm too. Um, but uninformed assumptions, I, I was watching my youngest daughter, uh, my older daughter, she was three or four years old, learning her colors, looking through a stack of towels, and they were pastel. And she was, she was naming off the colors, and I said, no, no. No, and luckily Diane was in the background. She said, Jerry, shut up. Don't teach our daughter colors. <laughs> Don't you dare. We will mess her up so, so badly um, because I, I couldn't tell. Um, or my third option, again, is to begin to access all the information available, right? Make, make uh, as educated guesses as I can. And again, I, I inferred just a bit earlier, Diane dresses me now. She helps me pick out my clothes. Let's, let's rephrase that. She helps me pick out my clothes, and, and I don't really care about matching. I just don't want to clash. I have this, this deep, deep, deep-seated fear because it happened to me a lot. I would get to school, and I hadn't checked with mom or whatever before I went out the door, and I, I horribly m clashed, 
And people made comments, even, even when I was a little kid, but more and more as I, I grew older and, and I refused to listen to anybody because <laughs> I was young and arrogant. Um, but like it or not, I have to figure out a way to live in my colorblind bubble, right? My, my experiential bubble. Um, unless somebody comes up a way with, to give me the color receptors on my cones in my eyes that I was born deficient. I'm really color deficient. That, that's a more accurate term for nearly everybody. Um, but until that happens, I've got to live to learn within my bubble. So Christian assumptions that harm rather than heal, how do they develop and, and, and how do we challenge them? Assumptions such as these, these are going to be, I think, some of the messages I'm going to be preaching on in this series. Uh, it's selfish to have our needs met. It sounds good, right? It, it sounds biblical, but as we dig into it deeper, this is one of those things that cause far more harm than, than healing. Or just doing the right thing is more important than why I do it. Or I change my behavior. If I change my behavior, if I could just make right choices, then I would grow spiritually. If I have God, I don't need people. And, and there's, there's a list. You know, I, I've tried a couple times compiling that list, and it's in the 30s or 40s now. Um, you might have seen things online. God didn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that kind of along those lines, and that's where I'll be going. But I want to really, really look at the ones that do us harm, right? Unless we can kind of get our heads around it and look at the full picture, um, some of these, these, these ideas, these biblical Christian ideas, like there's a kernel of truth there, um, but it gets expanded into falsehoods. So I want to give you an example from my own life that I think will resonate with a lot of people in this church. This is probably one of the most highly educated, theologically sharp churches I've ever been a part of. Um, so I'm sure you've experienced this, and this is kind of, I'm just going to kind of walk through how these assumptions um, um, happen. My theological and denominational bubble. Now step one is the ideas and opinions that we have, they develop inside of our experiential bubbles. Right? We, we, again, we can't experience somebody else's life. We can only experience what we've experienced, and that we, we build assumptions. We, we build ideas and opinions into our lives based on what we've experienced. There's nothing surprising about that. I was raised in a Christian bubble, right? inside of which was my Wesleyan bubble, which is a little bit different than my Armenian bubble, and we kind of put those two together sometimes, Wesleyan Armenian, inside of which was my Nazarene denominational bubble, and at this first step, assumptions are being made, again, based on very little to no outside information because they're outside of our bubble of experience. Either I was too young or I simply didn't have the wherewithal to realize that there were other ideas and opinions out there, right? I was happy as a clam in my little bubble. Everybody went to church and everybody loved Jesus. Well, then I started, you know, getting out in the neighborhood and getting out to school, and I realized kids cuss, <laughs> Mind blow, and their parents don't care. Worse yet, their parents cuss. I, at the, until that time, I could not conceive of that. That that was literally impossible. That was not within my experiential bubble. That 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 kind of an idea simply didn't exist. Well, somebody, my buddies at school, they began to pop my bubbles. So then I, I, I grow older, and my my bubble expands, and one by one, they get popped. Step two, either the bubble pops or somebody pops it. The first bubble to go was my Christian bubble. 
Right? The other kids cussed and they didn't believe in God. Mind blown. Second bubble was my theological bubble. I discovered Reformed Calvinist theology in this the single phrase that we all kind of keep coming back to, once saved, always saved. I had been raised as a good Nazarene, scared to death to go to sleep at night because I might not be just right. And like, I, I can lose my salvation. And in my mind, kind of like I, I lose my car keys. Right? And, and we get this idea because I, I was young and I, I didn't get it. And I, I, I kid you not, I would lie awake at night and I would pray, well, I would wish that I'd never been born. And a lot of tears. It freaked me out. Thoroughly freaked me out that I could lose my salvation. And then I heard this idea that, that you could believe that once saved, always saved. What? I've been going all through this, this pain for no reason. I'm mom, I'm going to the wrong church. I need to go down to the Baptist church. I need to attend the Presbyterian church. Mom said no. My third bubble, my Nazarene bubble, I discovered that there were other Armenian Wesleyan holiness traditions. Mind blown. I, 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 I couldn't conceive of it right until I had experienced it. Now, again, I, just to be honest, I want to share something with you. If you've got anybody under fifth grade right now, let's just ask them to leave the room real quickly. I'm not going to say any foul. I'm not going to show anything foul. It's just, just kind of an idea. If you don't want your kids asking questions before they need to be asking them, ask them to leave the room or cover their ears. Here we go. Some folks, they like going around and busting other people's bubbles just to be mean. That was me with my little brother. So we would bunk. A lot of times I was in the top bunk. He was under the bottom bunk. And I was two years older than him, so I, I discovered where babies come from. And so one night I decided I'm going to burst little Robbie's bubble. So I leaned over. I hung down. And you can just you can picture I'm hanging down. And I'm like, Robbie, Robbie guess where baby's crying? And I told him. And he freaked out. <laughs> no, no, stop it, stop it, stop it. He was so angry. He was, he was, he was blown away, mind blown. And it was so mean of me. And I, I recognize that. Now, Robbie, I'm sorry <laughs> if that helps. Now, whether somebody does it to be mean or not, I think a very, very natural reaction is the way he reacted. Um, it's called a, a knee-jerk reaction when our bubbles get burst, when this new information is introduced into our carefully constructed assumptions and ideas and opinions about, about life, right? Knee-jerk reaction, this is from the dictionary, reacting in a very predictable way without thinking, right? When the doctor takes that crazy little hammer and whacks you on the knee, your leg shoots out. You don't think about it. Right? And if your leg doesn't move, there are some issues, there's some problems going on, there's something broken, something not right. Um, and so a, a knee-jerk reaction, you see, see there, there we go, okay, knee-jerk reaction, right? So in my youth, right, and I, years and years in youth ministry and running summer camps and working at summer camps, and I, and I would be so blown away and I would be so upset and it, and it was like almost I could not conceive of when, when these people that, that, that were in my youth ministry um, they went on and they started attending churches that weren't Nazarene churches or they actually became ministers in churches that weren't Nazarene I, my, my, my initial thoughts and my initial words to them you, you heretic right you sell out did you never believe in the first you know it just went on and on the stupid things oh stupid things I've said the final step or the final stage is completely up to us. It's a choice we can make or choose not to make or we can choose one or we can choose the other. Step four, we learn to live with this new information or we reject it. 
We integrate that new information and either expand your bubble or you reject it and pull your bubble back in. Now, sometimes we need to integrate new ideas. And again, they take time. We've got to go through that whole stage, the knee-jerk reaction, the what? Sometimes, though, we need to reject. We dig into it, we look into it, and we say, no, that's, that's not biblical, that's not Christ-like. I reject that assumption. That's an ugly, ugly assumption. And so we rejected that idea. And sometimes we reject new information simply because we like being happy as clams. And to accept this new information is incredibly, it's scary, it's uncomfortable, and it's incredibly irritating. Didn't think I was going to add this, but it it just kind of works. You know, what happens to happy clams who get the irritating grains of sand? Right, this beautiful pearl. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a marine biologist. If I'm wrong on this, just kind of go with it. Thank you very much. Word of warning, if you hate comfortable little bubbles being popped, if you hate new ideas coming in and they make you uncomfortable, I, I, I warn, um, I, I want to tell you, I am, I'm fairly certain, assuming, <laughs> heaven's going to be a huge disappointment because I, I think there's going to be a lot of bubble popping in heaven what is that what you meant Jesus you've got to be kidding me right I mean I can see the whole range of emotions I've I've built and I've studied and and then I and I meet Christ face to face and he says well you came kind of close there pastor what I nailed it no no you no you didn't but nice try I love you anyway (laughs) I love Jesus anyway um so let's put all this together, these assumptions, these bubbles, this colorblindness, this idea. What, what do they all have in common? Black lives, blue lives, and being racially colorblind. As I scan the news and the social media, I see two radically different reactions to the death of George Floyd. And many of them seem to be, at least I hope and I pray they are, they're, they're knee-jerk reactions. But the reactions I notice, the two radically different reactions that I notice, I, I, I'm quickly seeing, um, it all depends on whether that person was raised in a, a black life bubble or at least a bubble that had black life in it or they were raised maybe in a blue life bubble. I sleep with, i married to somebody raised in a blue life bubble. My father-in-law lived with him for two years with my wife. Um... And I got an inside look at what it means to be inside that blue life, blue life bubble. And I, I, I wasn't there. I, I caught the aftermath by the time we moved up there. But I know the most painful experience as a police officer my father-in-law ever felt. And by the way, he, he went on to become the chief of police in a couple different cities. Um, when two police officers were killed in the line of duty. I know that rocked his world. And I know he felt pain deeply. Keep in mind, knee-jerk reactions are natural responses. When assumptions that we built our entire lives around, they get challenged. They get, that bubble gets popped. The real, the crucial issue is whether or not we're willing to challenge or question our assumptions based on this, this new information. Now, some assumptions, we, you, you know this by experience. Some assumptions are very quickly and easily discarded. That one's rather obvious. 
right? Like Doug, you don't go beating up kids on the playground. That's just, that's just not the way it works. That's not the right way. But this isn't that situation, this, this whole Black Lives Matter, this George Floyd. That, that is not this. Dis- and you know how I can tell that that's not this situation? It's not a simple situation. It's an incredibly multi-sided complex and again, depending on your perspective, there are folks who believe, no, this is a very, very clear black and white issue. That wasn't a pun. You, you get what I mean. Keep talking. I'm going to talk myself into a hole here. This is how I know that, that this is not a simple issue. People keep using the terms always, never, and every time. One good speaker I was listening to, everything was smelling roses, and then he stepped in poo. He said this, every time a white man gets arrested, he goes free. Every time a black man gets arrested, he goes to jail. Now, I'm, I'm assuming I, be, I have to. I'm assuming that was more emotion than conviction, right? Because everything he had said had been so carefully weighed out, and he would, I felt that he helped me understand so many different things that I simply did not understand. Um, but then he said that, and I, I, I blinked. Ah, well, why'd you, ah. Because true or not, as any married couple in the world will testify, always, never, and every time, those are fighting words. Those are fighting words, right? And these terms in this issue, instant and nearly irreconcilable polarization, right? Go to your corners and let the bell come out fighting. That's how this situation is rolling out. But we all know very, very, very few situations, very, very few relational situations are always, never, or every time. And the fact of the matter is when polarization happens, constructive, helpful conversations come to a screaming halt. Or worse, we're afraid to say anything for fear of being painted into one of the two corners. Either you're a racist or you're a thug. You're not allowed to have a middle opinion. Because... Only because it's such a raw, painful issue. So, so I, I'm trying to give people the benefit of the doubt on this. Last week, I made a conscious decision not to mention police officers being lethally ambushed for wearing the uniform. Now, this is kind of important. Um, they choose daily to wear their uniform. And if that pressure becomes too much or that, the weight of that uniform, and that's a, that's a weighty uniform. Again, I lived in a household where blue life matters. Choosing to wear that uniform, I know some people, they stop wearing it. Well, and someone pointed this out to me this week. They have a choice. If you're born with a certain color skin, you can't take that off. You, every day you go out, you don't have a choice but to wear that uniform. Like several people told me a false comparison. I think it's very, very similar, but different by degree, by, by extreme. <clears throat> Again, the most, the man I respect more than any man on this earth alive today is my father-in-law. And I never meant to hurt anybody last week by not mentioning blue lives and the attacks 
on their lives. And I apologize for that. I, I truly am. I, it's been a lousy week because I knew I'd hurt people, people I loved. Something else has become increasingly clear as I listen to people and, I, and, I, and I'm following on the internet. We're using the term colorblind in two radically different ways. Here, here's what I hear. I'm not a racist. I've always treated everybody the same. Christians shouldn't, should be colorblind. We shouldn't care more about black issues or white issues. We should care about all issues. And I don't care what color people are. I treat everybody the same. And I know a lot of people are using this, this phrase, this, this term colorblind, and I think in a, in a very, very correct way, in a very, very beautiful, beautiful way. And I, and I know this because this person, they, they basically said what I'm about to say. The color of skin shouldn't matter when it comes to whether or not or how much respect each person deserves. <clears throat> Each person is a precious life created by God. Absolutely true. God created all of our bodies, our human bodies, and he made them all to reflect a part of his own glory. Absolutely true. But there's another dimension, there's another side to this phrase that's kind of snuck in, um, and it's, it's kind of a, a Christian assumption, um, but it's not, it's not really biblical. It, it's... I want to address that aspect of the assumption of using this, this term colorblind. Um, there's a kernel, there's an aspect, an absolute, absolute aspect of truth to this. But again, there's this false assumption underlying it. I'm going to read from you Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 28. It says this. You've all heard this. This is Paul's, like his famous freedom and equality speech. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And you may even hear Christians say that Paul encouraged a, a kind of a colorblindness when it comes to race and ethnicity, and perhaps even you know, citing this particular passage. Um, but he wasn't actually promoting colorblindness in the way that we're using it in our race, our race relations and our, our conversations um, today. He's actually... He's actually quite, quite concerned about treating everybody respectfully, um, but he recognized, and I think once I get into this, we, 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 all, we all recognize that, that treating everybody respectfully often means not treating everybody exactly the same. Every parent knows this. You look at your kids and you love them. Well, you might even love them differently. You treat them differently because they have different needs. They have different hurts. Every parent understands this. I want you to listen to his words in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. It says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. He then adds a very long, long, run-on, kind of convoluted, confusing kind of sentence. I'll, I'll paraphrase it very quickly. To those under the law, I lived like one under the law. To those not under the law, I lived like one not under the law. And then he caps it in verse 22. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul respected the differences but he knew that, well, different strokes for different folks. Can we use that phrase? So before we get to do, I, I think, the, his intention in this passage um, and what it means for our church today, I, I, just a couple key ideas about Paul's social consciousness. Number one, Paul continued to have a special bond with his kinspeople, the Jews. 
He didn't surrender his I'm a Jew card when he met Christ. He continued to love deeply his fellow Jews, even wishing, this is going to shock some people, even wishing that he could save them at the cost of his own salvation. Listen to this. This is in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 through 5, 2 through 4 and a half. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Again, at times in his letters, he notes colleagues like Andronicus and Junia who were my fellow Jews in the faith. So he remembered and he prayed for and he, he cared deeply about his Jewish people. He loved them. A second aspect of Paul's social consciousness, this, is, this has to be coupled with that. They, they've got to be coupled. Paul accommodated and respected Gentiles in their own cultures. He spent most of his ministry in Gentile territory. In order to preach to those territories and to those communities, he had to respect their traditions and their cultures. In the second chapter of Galatians, right, two cultures were clashing. The Jewish way of being good and the, what Paul was saying in Christ, how to, how to be righteous, how to be in a right standing with God. And Paul shows us kind of the, the way of Jesus in this. He, he kind of, he, he applauded Peter, and you're going to have to take a look at this at yourself. Um, he applauded Peter, who lived like a Gentile when he visited the mostly Gentile churches. Good job, Peter. But he rebuked Peter when he flip-flopped, when that became ad- disadvantageous to him. When his Jewish friends showed up, he, he literally became a respecter of persons, right? He began to treat people either respectfully or disrespectfully, whether, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. Paul called him out on that. That was unacceptable. Although Paul sought to respect all people, he knew that certain circumstances called for giving a little bit above and beyond what anybody else would have received. We know in a lot of his letters that a lot of the churches were collecting funds to be sent to the church of Jerusalem that was having a tremendously difficult time. And you notice that he didn't collect everybody's uh, donations and then, okay, seven churches, divide the amount by seven, everybody gets the same amount. No, no. The lion's share went to Jerusalem, the church there, because that was the church that was hurting. That was the church that was in pain, that was suffering. I think it's a very, very similar situation to COVID-19. It's not like cancer and all the other horrible diseases don't matter right now. It's just that we're, we, we've got a real hyper-focus on, we, we have to have a, a hyper-focus on COVID-19 because it's just so vicious and deadly right now and rampant. And I would suggest that maybe Black Lives Matters, that that's what they're saying. There is a hurt that many of you simply can't understand and we just recognize it. I would say for Blue Lives too, there's a tremendous amount of pain when somebody in your family that you love and respect goes out and stands up for right and wrong and, and they get gunned down. That, that's got to hurt in a way I, I, I can't imagine. So back to Paul's famous equality speech. Galatians is all about freedom, but it's not about political freedom. It's not about this ex- existential freedom, like, I, you know, I'm free, I can do anything I want. In fact, he says, although I am free and belong to no one, that, that's kind of this, I, I'm free to do anything I want. That, that's not what he was talking about. He was actually talking about Christian freedom, especially the, the, the liberation from sin and evil, such that, that believers could, could come to the throne of God with, without the shackles of the, the Jewish religion, the shackles of Torah 
also on them that the Jewish people had experienced all these years. The question that's never far from Paul's arguments throughout this letter is how does a Gentile or a non-Jew become a son of Abraham? So Paul pops the Jewish bubble. That might have been true before, but not after Christ. The focus should be squarely on Christ now who invites all into the household of faith as equals. So Galatians 3.28 is not then about erasing or ignoring or even downplaying ethnic, color, race, gender, identities whatsoever. He wasn't advocating seeing them as the same. He was saying that the world operates all too often on, on power structures that decide your value and, and the respect that should be given to you based on the color of your skin, your gender, or maybe your last name. I don't think Paul had any intention of forgetting or, or being blind to the fact that some people were, in fact, Gentiles or women or slaves. Again, we often remember Paul and his neither nor, neither nor. There's neither nor, neither nor, nor is there. And these, 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 these negations, these, these negative words, they... They, they really were meant to point to the wider point which is made at the very end of that, that passage, for you are all one in Christ. And being one doesn't mean to erase difference like some kind of giant melting pot. I know that's still a, a cherished dream of a lot of people, and I, I personally, I don't agree with it. I think Paul, I'm not even going to say whether Paul would agree or agree. I, I would read this one passage. This is in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think he's saying that differences are crucially important. He writes this in verse 12 and 13, just as one body, just as a body, though, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, we all were given the same one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. And I think we, we miss this beautiful oneness vision of Paul when we ignore our differences, and we, we do harm, and we do pain. And this, this vision of oneness is also harm when we, we, we don't recognize when a part of the body is, is hurting in, in, in an incredibly deep way. Now, I'm, I'm watching the news, and I'm, I'm beginning to see hearts and lives and heritage and, and social systems that have made people feel less than. Um, rather, red, yellow, brown, black, white, male, female, heterosexual, homosexual, anything in between, Christian, Islamic, Hindi, atheist, in uniform, not in uniform. The list goes on and on. We humans have found amazingly diverse ways to keep people down and to keep us up on top. I want to just very quickly, a, a song, I, I love Moody Blues growing up, this will speak to you if you don't know much about the Bible, I kind of bring in culture here. This song is written about a, a guy who had lost his, his lover, right, and she had given him white satin sheets, and he was rather poor at the time, so he kind of cherished these white satin, it was the most expensive thing I think that he owned. And the song, some of the words, breathe deep the gathering gloom, watch lights fade from every room. Bedsetter people look back and lament. Bedsetter is like a studio apartment. If, if you lived in one of those, you didn't have a lot of money. Another day's useless energy spent. Impassioned lovers wrestle as one. Again, there's a little bit of imagery, but there's also this imagery of uh, impassioned lovers going out against the world and, 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 and fighting people's assumptions together. 
Lonely man cries out for love and has none. New mother picks up and suckles her son. Senior citizens wish they were young. And then the part that I just, because I'm colorblind, I kept thinking about it my whole, my whole life, and I memorized it. Cold-hearted orb that rules the night, the moon, removes the colors from our sight. Red is gray, yellow, white, but we decide which is right and which is an illusion. So the, the writer starts out with the pain, and there is tremendous pain in a broken relationship when somebody you love rejects that love. Huge You've all experienced that. Nothing worse than somebody saying, ah, there's no more fish in the sea. Don't, don't, don't say that. He concludes that in the midst of this great pain and relational sorrow that he's lost the ability to even recognize right from wrong. It's a free-for-all in his mind. He, he can't even assume anymore. But that's not the only conclusion that we can reach, my friends. We have a hope in Christ Jesus. And I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is an issue that can be redeemed. There's a right way and there's a wrong way, and it's very, very clear. Love one another as I have loved you. Different hurts will require different responses. And surely I will be with you. These are the words of Christ. Surely I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Y'all you bow your heads for just a moment. Father, help us be peacemakers. There's no qualifiers on that one. Doesn't say help us be peacemakers when it's comfortable, when it's not irritating, when it's not scary. It just says be peacemakers. Bless the peacemakers, Father. Thank you. Your son's in my pray. Amen.